Would you stand with me and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12? 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. As we have sang to you that you're a good, good father, that's so true. You're a dad, you're our Abba Father. And as we look at this area of where you, out of your love, will expose our sin, we pray that we would see your heart in seeking us out. And that we would turn to you in repentance and confession and experience your restoration. We pray that the time of refreshing would come from your presence. We know there's a real enemy, and so would you bind Satan? Would you help me to communicate your word accurately? Would you set me aside, give us ears to hear, and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Texts get exposed. Those inappropriate texts that you weren't intending for anyone else to see, that you were hiding from your spouse, if you were single, that you're hiding from others. Somehow, some way, they get exposed. Emails get revealed. Carbon copied it to the wrong person. Forward it to the wrong person. Just ask Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Emails never stay private. They never stay, stay hidden. This idea that it's just this private world between me and someone else. Receipts get found that you never intended for anybody to find. What's that receipt in your wallet? What were you doing down in Phoenix? I thought you were on a business trip. Why were you buying these type of gifts that never went to your wife? They never went to your husband. I remember in high school going to a movie that we weren't allowed to go to. My dad came to me and confronted me with going to this movie. I was like, how in the world did he find out? This was like two or three months later. And he never told me until I was adult, but he found the movie ticket in my pocket. He was doing our laundry, and, and he found that movie ticket. And they just, receipts get found, don't they? I thought it was in the trash. I thought that I, I was diligent to shred that, but they get revealed. Pictures show up on Facebook, don't they? Messages don't remain private. Websites get discovered. I thought I covered my tracks in this place. God's going to expose David in his sin. David has done everything in his power, in his intellect to cover his tracks, but God sees and God knows. That was the the end of chapter 11. Where we've been so far is David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he brings Uriah back, Bathsheba's husband, from battle, hopefully that he would know his wife intimately, that they would believe that the child was from Uriah instead of David. Uriah says, no, I'm not going to go to my house while my men are out fighting. So David has Uriah killed, and God gives this narrative, and he ends it by saying, but the Lord saw and was displeased. And then we see God going on the offensive in chapter 12. God chooses to expose David. And the same is true in our lives. In sexual sin and in the area of sin, God will expose it for the purpose of restoration. It's not that God's trying to humiliate us. It's because God wants to draw us back to himself. He loves us enough to discipline us. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Please focus on that sentence. The Lord sent Nathan to David. God takes action. 
David's hiding, God's calling him out of hiding, but now God seeks him in this place of hiding. And I'm thankful that we serve a God that does this, that he doesn't just allow us to stay in our place of compromise. We find it in the life of Peter. He had denied the Lord. He'd gone back to fishing. Christ was raised from the dead, and he comes to seek Peter in that compromised state for the purpose of restoration. We find Saul, who at this point was an unbeliever and persecuting Christians, and God shows up on the doorstep of his life and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And we may think that we've done a good job of hiding our sin from every human on the planet, but we haven't ever pulled the wool over God's eyes. Consider this, the idea that we can hide our sin is a myth. How many of you guys have ever seen the show Mythbusters? All right, about half of you. The other half was like, I'm not raising my hand. It's too early, you know, for, forget that. We've probably seen the show Mythbusters. It's kind of fun. All of these things that we think to be true, they test it. And sometimes it is true, but other times it's a myth. And we live in this false reality that we can hide our sin because God sees and he knows and he's going to expose it. In Mark 4 verse 22, it says, For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret but that should come to light. That's the promise of Christ. That's just as much true as that God works all things together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's just as true as John 3.16. There is nothing hidden. It's a myth to think that I can hide things. In Dr. Doug Weiss' book, he gives some examples. He changes the name of men that have been exposed in their sin. Man goes to visit a prostitute, picks up the prostitute, turns out to be a police officer. He's a pastor. It's now the worst day of his life. His sins exposed. Paul's a doctor. Think about going to visit your doctor. And he begins chatting with a 17-year-old gal online. Happens over several months. Goes to meet her at the mall. Sits down on a bench with this 17-year-old. He's surrounded by cops goes to jail, loses his license to be able to practice medicine. Could go on and on of stories of sin getting exposed. Nothing is hidden in our lives. Much better for us to bring it to the light of God's love than to continue to think that we can hide it. Maybe for some reason as we've gone through this series, you find yourself like David. And as we began... In chapter 11, verse 1, you're like, it's getting really uncomfortable in here, and I don't like it at all. We're talking about sexual sin, and I'm going to just go ahead and continue to hide my, my sexual sin. There's no reason for me to share this with anyone. And we go to, into the rest of chapter 11, we spent a whole message talking about how David was hiding. And you're like, you know what? I know that I'm hiding, but I'm staying right where I'm at. God will give a period where he doesn't expose us to give us the opportunity to repent, but eventually that ball's going to drop. And it happens for David. God sent Nathan. Nathan's now going to go with all of the information. I don't know how God's going to do it, but if you're hiding sin this morning, if you're hiding sexual sin, God's going to expose it. He's going to reveal it. He already knows. It's going to be brought into the light. That's what he promises to do. 
How about for Nathan, how difficult is this? He's friends with David. He was the one that told David God didn't allow him to build a temple. He's got the difficult job of confronting the sin. However, we see the fruit that comes from Nathan's willingness to obey the Lord. Be careful. God may speak to you and say, I want you to go challenge this other believer. Things aren't quite right. You don't go in a spirit of judgment. You don't go in a spirit of condemnation. We as brothers and sisters in Christ go in a spirit of meekness, desiring to see someone restored. It's always God's heart to restore. Amen? Amen. We're always going with an attitude of, I know at some point I'm going to need sin called out in my life. But God will oftentimes use another believer in this process of revealing and exposing sin. In verse 2, we have this story, this illustration that Nathan gives. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. That's a pretty close pet right there. They love this little lamb, don't have a lot of money, save up their lamb, and then, and then bring this, this lamb into the house. It's like a daughter. Eats out of his own cup. I don't let anybody in my coffee cup. You know what I'm saying? Let alone the dog. We have a Newfoundland. Her name's Lady Lou. She's about 160, 107 pounds. She can eat right off the table if you're not watching her. She's a huge dog. She drools. She's not getting into my cup or my, my bowl of Cheerios. Or, or, but this, this lamb is so dear that it treats this like a daughter. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So here's the rich man. He has some guest that comes in. He has a huge flock, but he doesn't take from his flock. He goes over to the poor man and he takes this one ewe lamb that is so dear to him. Maybe you know the story. You understand the illustration. You're putting together the dots. And we know that the rich man is King David. The poor man is Uriah. So this shows us something about Uriah and Bathsheba's relationship. They loved each other. They're a family. They cared for one another. And also we see something about David. It shows the selfishness of David. That he had no concern for Uriah in the midst of his sexual sin. And that's the reality of sexual sin. We become extremely selfish. We're only looking at our own desires, our own sinful lusts, instead of the well-being of others. In verse 5, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the Lord who has done this shall surely die. The man, excuse me, who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Can you picture the rage that's coming over David? His face is red. And immediately, he's quick to jump to judgment. He's saying, this man's going to die. He's going to pay for this thing. I bet that you're a little bit outraged as you heard this story. Think if you were a neighbor, and you're watching all this go down. Now, let's say that the rich man, his name was Bob. And you know that Bob's got thousands of flocks. And then Frank lives over here in his cottage. Hardly has anything, but you've seen him love this, this little lamb. Then you watch Bob come over and take Frank's lamb. 
Just steal it from him and go and kill it in order to feed this traveler. And you're like, what in the world's going on? This is, a, this is an outrage. And David hears this and he's like, this man has to die. He's going to die and he's going to pay fourfold for stealing this lamb. But God's word had addressed this situation in Exodus chapter 22. If you stole someone's sheep, you had to repay with four sheep, but it was not something that resulted in capital punishment. David was much stricter than God would be in this particular situation. Why? Because David was the one who was guilty. He just hadn't realized it yet. So here's the lesson. Our sin always looks worse on someone else. I don't even see it in my own life. I'm not even aware of it in my own life. But then I see it in somebody else's life, usually even in a less degree, and it makes me angry and it makes me outraged. So this is the convicting thing. Is there someone I'm really frustrated with? Is there someone I'm really angry at? Then the reality is, is I'm probably committing sin in that same area, possibly even to a greater degree. I just don't realize it yet. It's almost like this. Maybe you've got an old t-shirt. Maybe it's from 1996. Men, you probably have some of those shirts in your closet. Ladies, maybe you too. And it's your prized shirt from a 5K that you happened to run in 1996, you know? And you wear it and your friends, family, spouse says, it's probably time to let that t-shirt go. You're like, no, no, this is a great t-shirt. It's vintage. It's vintage, babe. You know, I'm keeping this one. And it just so happens that then you run into somebody at Walmart that has the same shirt from 1996 and you see it now in its true colors and you go, that is nasty. That thing is just worn out. You know, it's 20 years old. It's time to move on. It's time to run another 5K, you know. You need to get rid of that shirt. And all of a sudden you, you become aware of the fact that, oh, that's the reality of this shirt. And when I see my sin on someone else and it makes me angry, it's revealing that there's something wrong in my heart. Matthew 7 verse 2 says, For with ju- what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And what, what you measure out, it will be measured back to you. So think about it in the workplace. Maybe you're really irritated that someone has shown up late for work and the boss isn't calling them on it. You're like, come on, when's justice going to happen? Well, eventually over time, We'll be late, won't we? And the standard that we held someone else to, that'll be the same standard that's used against us. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Something's wrong in David's heart because of how he responds to this story. In verse seven, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And that's not a compliment. He's not going like, you're the man, bro. You you are the man, you know. This is an intense moment. He's saying, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I will anoint you king over Israel, and I've delivered you from the hand of Saul. The person that David despised in the story was himself. The person that he was so angry at in reality was him. And we don't know how much time goes by from when David committed adultery to now when he gets exposed. But he's been hiding it for some time. He hasn't been willing to deal with it. He hasn't been willing to see his own sin. And now in this moment, he's realizing, oh, this is what I've done. I'm the one who stole from the poor man. I took the poor man's wife. I had the poor man murdered. 
in order for us to get to the place of restoration, we have to first sit in this moment for a while. We've got to sit in this place where God reveals our sin and he shows us the reality of who we are. And he says, you're this person. You're this person. And maybe as we've gone through this series, you're like, man, I'm so glad that Eric is talking about these things, but this is really for somebody else. You know, I, I'm doing really good in, in this, this area. Or maybe even it's been really quick to pronounce judgment upon others. Like, it's about time that, you know, Christians get their act together when it comes to this area of sexual integrity, but you know your thoughts. You know where your thoughts are and the imagination of your heart and God wants to lift the veil and, and speak and say, you're that man. There's, there's sexual sin that God wants to deal with in your life, in that reality. Maybe some way you've been able to justify sexual sin and for God to expose and God to bring it out and for God to say, look, you really are this, this person. Maybe it's some other area of sin that we've done really well of hiding and we've raided sin and we've gone, these are the really bad ones, but these are the acceptable ones. And then God is showing us who we really are in the mirror. Not the physical mirror, but the mirror of God's word. God's word's a mirror. It reveals to us our true character. And we have to sit in that place of God pronouncing the truth of what he really sees and the real state of it so that we can get to a place of brokenness, so we can get to a place of repentance and confession to receive the restoration of God. God's message to David is, look, I was the one that anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And we need to remember who we are. We need to remember what God has done in our life. He's the one who's forgiven us. He's the one who's made us sons of God, daughters of God. He's done even more for us than he did for David. You're saying, wait, wait a second. No, I'm not king. Well, you're joint heirs with Christ. If you're a believer, you're going to rule and reign with Christ. In verse 10, I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. I picture here the voice of a loving father not necessarily angry, speaking to David, saying, what I gave you? Saul's house? All of these wives? Israel and Judah? Israel was split, and I, I gave you Israel, the northern part, and Judah, the southern part? Was that not enough? Was that too, too little? And sexual sin is always an issue of contentment. David wasn't content with what God had given to him. God brings up the reality, the issue of discontentment in his life. And it was when he was blessed. It was when he was prosperous. Paul wrote and said that he had learned, whether he was in a place where he was an abounding or he was abased, to be content. And sometimes when we're abounding, it's difficult to be content. Well, if I just had a little bit more, I've, I'm kind of bored with this. I've lived in this house for a, a lot of years now. I've, I've driven this car for a long time now. I've been in this marriage now for a lot of years. I'm, I'm kind of bored. I know how, how things go. And discontentment can show up so many ways. And God's saying, why don't you be content with what I've provided for you, who I am in your life? And so we begin to apply this to our own lives in this area of sexual sin. Pornography really is an issue of discontentment. 
not content with what God has provided inside of your marriage, not content with the place that God has put you in singleness. Ladies, you may be reading some romantic novel, and in your mind, maybe you'd never say it out loud, or maybe you do, but you read this and you go, you know what, why can't my husband be like this guy in this book? You know, he's so romantic, he's so kind, he's so caring, he's so pursuing, he listens perfectly, because that dude's not real. You know, some lady made him up in her mind. It's a female author. She's like, you know, this is, this is how I wish my husband was. I'm going to put it down, down on, on paper. And discontentment can slowly look, come in, you know. You see one of your friend's husbands, and you picture him to be so kind and caring and godly. You only see one side, you know. You only see what that dude's like at church. You don't see the reality of who he is. Has struggles just like anybody else. Men, you're looking at pornography, and you might not ever say it out loud, but you, in your mind, you're beginning to think, man, why doesn't my wife look like this, this inappropriate image that you're looking at? Because she's photoshopped. It's not even physically possible, you know? They went in and photoshopped this false reality and you're looking at it. You're not even looking at reality. You've been duped, fully duped, fool. That's it, right there. But discontentment comes in and saying, well, I wish my, I wish my wife was, was like this, you know? You're single and you're in that place of saying, I, I can't live in sexual purity. You know, I have this desire It's got to be expressed. I can't wait until God brings someone into my life. And what we're really wrestling with is contentment. And Jesus said that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us, so that our lifestyle could be without covetousness. Jesus is enough. Whatever your state is, if you're single, Jesus is enough to provide contentment. If you're married and it's a difficult situation, Jesus is enough to provide contentment. For us, the Father's message was, I gave you my son. And was that too little? Was that not enough for you? Was was Jesus not enough for you? And then this question for David, if it was too little, if it wasn't enough, just ask and I would give you more. Amazing that God would say that to David. So God is inviting us in this area of contentment to talk with him about it. God, I am discontent in this area. And God, would you do a work in my heart? Would, would you make me right with you? The heart of the issue for David was discontentment. Why have you despised the command of the Lord to do evil in his sight? That was the question. Why did you despise my command to do evil in my sight? Whenever we sin whether it's sexually or another area, it always comes down to our attitude towards the word of God. In those moments, we've despised the command of God. We've stepped over the authority of God and what God has declared to us. This is a good reminder for us this morning of how do we view God's word. Is it good suggestions? Is it cute stories? Is it kind of entertaining? Or is this a loving God who's provided us salvation and forgiveness and giving us commands of how to live our lives. God, this is your command. So I want to try to submit my life under the command of your word and ask that you'd give me the power to be able to live it out. In verse 9, you've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. 
How did Nathan know? How did he know? The only way that he would have known is that God showed him. And he knows it all. He doesn't just know this little story about the sheep. He knows the reality of what David's done. He says, you've taken Bathsheba. You've killed Uriah. And this is humbling. This is sobering. You might be able to trick people, but you can't trick God. You might be able to cover our tracks so that people don't know. But God knows, and he's going to reveal it. He's going to expose it. Sometimes God just gives a word of knowledge. God speaks to a wife and says, you need to go to this place at this time, to this location. And she shows up and she finds her husband in a place of compromise. Sometimes God speaks to a husband and says, you know what, just go, go check your wife's phone. Go through her emails, go through her texts. And all of a sudden, it's, it's exposed. I know that the Holy Spirit speaks to people to reveal sin. God did it all the time when I was growing up with my parents. It's like, Mom, Dad, how did you know about this? Well, the Holy Spirit speaks to parents. That's what my, that's what my parents would say. And they'd actually pray that I'd get busted. Man, you know? A good prayer for godly parents, right? So God, God sees, and he'll speak, and, he, and he'll reveal it. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before of all Israel, before the son. We're going to look at next week the consequences of sexual sin, and we'll finish out chapter 12. But this morning, we're going to focus on repentance and restoration as we look at verse 13 and verse 14. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. This is a powerful moment in the life of David, this man after God's own heart. He goes from anger to now realizing his own sinful condition, and he owns it, no excuses, and he realizes who he sinned against. I've sinned against the Lord. It's easy for us to get defensive when God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, when he reveals our sin. We want to play the victim card, don't we? David doesn't bring up stuff like, well, you know, I've had such a tough past. Those years in the cave were traumatic. Saul throwing the spear at me and trying to kill me and going all homicidal, that really messed me up. My older brothers, they picked on me. They made fun of me. They thought that I was nothing. I, I spent all the time out with the sheep. The only friends that I had were, were the sheep. There's so much pressure as being king. I, I just needed a break. I needed a, I needed a rest. I'm really the one that you should feel sorry for in this situation. But that's a lot of times what our flesh desires, isn't it? When we get exposed in sin, well, well you've got to see my logic and the reason why, why I've done this. Or a lot of people have done a lot worse. And there's no playing the victim. There's no blame shifting. He simply owns it. And he says, I have sinned before the Lord. And he confesses his sin to God. Confession is to agree with God, to acknowledge that I have sinned. Notice that David doesn't call this an affair. He calls it what it is. He calls it sin. 
And for us to get to that place and sin in our lives to say, I'm going to be broken before God. And what's the promise of God when we confess our sin to him? 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Last week when we were in chapter 11 looking at the hiding, my heart just ached to get to chapter 12, to get to the forgiveness and the restoration, to get to this moment, to be able to declare that there's no sin that's beyond the forgiveness and restoration of God. I want you to think about that for a moment. There's no sin that's beyond God's restoration and his forgiveness. With sexual sin, there's so much guilt and shame, isn't there? It's highly personal. It's sacred. That's why God has saved it and blessed it inside of marriage. And so when we go outside of God's boundaries and and his commands, there's so much guilt, there's so much shame. And I'm sure that many of you are wrestling with, could God forgive me? Maybe it is part of your past and it's years past, but enemy always wants to bring it up to cause you to live in, in guilt and shame. You know, God has forgiven you. Jesus died on the cross, he rose again. And as you confessed that sin to him years ago, he forgave you and he removed that sin from you. Maybe some of you are in bondage and you're in that trap this morning. And you're going, how could God forgive me of the pornography that I look at? the sinful relationship that I've been involved in. And and you know what? That's why Jesus died. That's why he rose again. Think about it for a moment. If God can forgive David of adultery and murder, he can forgive you of the sexual sin in your life or sin in another area if you will confess it to him. But forgiveness doesn't flow without confession. You have to understand that. There's a lot of people in scripture that don't respond this way and they're not restored into fellowship with God. If we desire to be restored into fellowship with God, then we've got to get to this place where we confess our sin to the Lord, but we also repent of our sin. And repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. And we experience that with David. We don't find David continuing in sexual sin. He doesn't stay in this place, and that's so important. In sin in our lives where we're convicted before God, We change our mind, we change our direction, we're turning away from the sin and we're turning back to God. We're turning back to that fellowship with the Lord. In Acts chapter three, verse 19, it says this, repent therefore and be converted, change direction, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Don't you long that time of refreshment that comes from being in God's presence? And it comes after repentance. I want to be clear on this. If you know Christ as your Savior, we're not confessing and repenting to get our salvation back. We're repenting and confessing to get back into right relationship with God. David hasn't stopped being the child of God during this period of his life. Some would refer it to a backslidden period, but what he has lost is that fellowship with the Lord, of being able to be near to the Lord. And maybe it has been years, months, weeks, since you've been able to feel the presence of God, draw near to God, and you know it's because of the rebellion in your life. And God's saying, I'm not going to fellowship in the midst of this darkness. I'm light. If you want to fellowship with me, you've got to come out of the darkness and into the light. When was the last time in church you heard a message about repentance? It's not something we talk about as the church as a whole very often anymore. And it sounds like such a heavy word, doesn't it? Repentance. But it's such a freeing word. That's what we've experienced in our lives, amen? 
is that when we're in a place of compromise, we're in a place of disobedience, when we own our sin and confess it to God, call it as it is, we turn away from it, God always welcomes us back into his presence. We experience his forgiveness. We experience his restoration. And you may not even begin to be able to see a path that doesn't include sexual sin in your life. But I've got to let you know, through God's grace and his power and who he is, he's able to transform and change our lives. So look at verse, the end of verse 13. It says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The judgment from the law, if you committed adultery, was you were to be stoned to death. There was no sacrifice for adultery in the law because it was just immediate death. David was thinking, oh, I'm going to be stoned to death because of this. And the God's message to him is, you're forgiven. You are not going to be put to death. You shall not die. And there's still consequences, and we'll see that next week, but God forgives David. I want you to look with me at a couple of psalms as we close up this morning. Psalms 32 and also Psalms 51. So turn to the book of Psalms, Psalms 32 and also Psalms 51. Both Psalms of David. The title coming into this psalm, a psalm of David of contemplation. So we know David wrote this psalm. Verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The word blessed, it literally means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the one whose transgression, transgression is willful disobedience, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So we come to the Lord in repentance. We come to the Lord in confession and experiences forgiveness and it causes rejoicing in us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose in spirit there is no deceit. Oh yeah, that's a blessing. That God doesn't put it to our account. Do you believe that God can forgive sexual sin or he doesn't put it to your account, to my account? Verse three, David now writes and says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David describes this period of hiding before he was exposed by God, and he says, It's the worst. My vitality, David loved life. He was a joy to be around. He had a smile on his face. But when he was in compromise and hiding from God, all that vitality was sucked out of him. Literally, his bones just ached. God's hand was heavy upon him. And that's what God does for us as believers. When we're in rebellion to him, is he'll put his loving, corrective hand upon us until we get to that place of verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's when David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I've realized I've sinned against the Lord and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And he receives that correction and he receives that forgiveness in his life. Look down a little bit further in Psalms 32. He goes on to say in verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go and I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near. God's saying, David, 
Will you now allow me to to instruct you with my eye? Are you ready to receive my instruction? And out of that confession and brokenness, then comes this willingness to say, I don't want to be like a horse. I don't want to be like a mule. I don't want God to have to rank on my face in order to get me where he wants me to go. I want to be able to look at God's eye and for him to be able to direct me with his eye. We do this as parents with our children, right? We look into their eyes and we can communicate a lot with our eyes. Like when we get home, you're dead. Or we can look at him as well and say, hey, you know what? I love you. You're doing great. And we can give affirmation with our eyes. And by looking at God's face, we can be instructed. Psalms 51. Let's look at Psalms 51. Again, the title of this psalm, it says, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is right out of the confrontation with David. David goes back to a place of worship to meet with the Lord. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned. If we come to realize we've sinned against God and done this evil in your sight, therefore you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Look at verse 10 of Psalms 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. God has the power to be able to do that, to create a clean heart in us. This area of sexual sin, it has to do with our hearts, has to do with David's heart. He knows he's forgiven, but he's saying, God, would you restore my heart? God, would you clean my heart? Would you renew my spirit? Would you renew a steadfast spirit in me? Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you do not despise. David experiences the forgiveness of God. He experiences the restoration of God, experiences repentance in his life. Do you know what it flowed out of? A broken and contrite spirit. Can I speak to you just very plainly, very openly? Is no conference is going to result in victory over pornography and sexual sin and cause us to walk in sexual integrity. There is no book on the planet written by a human author that can get us out of the darkness of sexual sin. There's no pastor. There's no counseling. You're like, man, where is this going? The only thing that is going to bring somebody out of a place of sexual sin into forgiveness and God causing victory in their life is if they get to a place where they have a broken and contrite spirit over their sin. They're broken before God. Stop making excuses. Saying, God, I have sinned against you. You might be saying, well, why in the world are you having a conference then? Why, why in the world are you encouraging people to seek out biblical counseling and, and read biblical books and have these tools to help equip people because once the heart is broken, the conference can be helpful. Once the heart is broken, counseling can be meaningful. But until the heart is broken, it's an uphill battle that no one can win. And God is waiting for the heart to break. 
God is waiting for that moment in our lives where it says, I'm broken before God. God, I've sinned against you. I can't justify this anymore in my life. I'm seeing it for what it is. I'm turning away from you. I'm turning back to you. And in that moment, then God gives the forgiveness. And God begins that process of restoration. Interesting, the timing. Maybe you saw it. April 11th edition of Time Magazine. The very front has a, an article on pornography. I wouldn't recommend reading it. I, I read it. It was extremely discouraging. It was totally the world's view. The world is getting to a place where they see the damage of pornography and don't want it to be a part of their life. It was about men in their 20s that were saying, I don't want to look at pornography anymore. But I was so discouraged at their conclusion. This was this conclusion of this whole article on this issue of pornography. The way to help people stop looking at pornography is to expose kids to pornography at younger ages while they take sex ed in school. So that was the conclusion of the whole matter. When they're in junior high and high school and they're taking sex ed, is just go ahead and show them pornography and then it'll, it'll take away the novelty of this. And I was just going, wow, the world has no solution for this. They don't. But God does. It's called the gospel. Applying it to our lives as believers today that Jesus died for our sin. He died for our sexual sin. He rose again. He's at the doorstep of our lives saying, turn to me. Turn to me. Can't you hear God through these days of David hiding say, David, turn to me. The Holy Spirit was there in David's life saying, David, it's been so long since you worshiped. David, it's been so long since you have have drawn near to me. David, why don't you bring this into the light? No, no, no. And so then here comes Nathan and exposes it. And God is listening. And he saw the rebellion. He saw the sin. But then he heard the cry of David. We don't know the emotion that's in 1 Samuel 12. I think David's weeping. I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. As he's writing these songs, he's crying out to God, saying, God, restore unto me my salvation. I want to feel the joy of my salvation. My heart is all wrong. It's all messed up. It's gone to places that I've never wanted it to go. God, would you clean my heart? And if David can go to the depths of this kind of sin, we know that we're capable as well. But he also went to the depths of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And one of the prayers that we've been seeking the Lord is to change the culture of this church that we don't have an attitude as believers that we never struggle. Maybe this area or some other area of our lives, man, we all struggle, all of us. And to be able to take off the facade and say, I can be real with God, I can be real with others, and God in his unconditional love to walk with us through the mess. Not to leave us in the mess, but to walk with us through the mess. God walked with David through the mess, amen? And got him to the place where he needed to be and cleaned his heart and restored his salvation. And then to to be able to walk with one another through the mess. That's what we want to do with this conference. That's what we want to do with these small groups. And going forward, that sexual integrity and sexual sin is not a don't ask, don't tell area, but it's an area when we struggle and people sin is to be able to be honest before God, be honest before one another, and see people walk from guilt and shame and darkness into the forgiveness of God, into the restoration of God to see God transform and change lives. But as we end this morning, let's go to that place of repentance. And Billy's gonna come and he's gonna lead us in worship. And what I'm gonna invite you to do is is we're gonna have a little bit of an extended time of worship.
And you respond as the Holy Spirit wants you to respond. If you want to come down here to the front and stand or kneel because you feel like God is leading you to that place, do. If you need to come and receive prayer from the ministry team, do. If you need to turn to someone, a spouse, a friend who's sitting next to you and say, pray with me, please do. If you need to kneel where you're at, please do. And kneel before God. If you need to go stand in the back by, by the back wall and do business with God, but draw near to God and do business with the Lord. Because this is what I know. This is what I know. The reality of it is, is no preaching and teaching ultimately changes lives. It's not cl- how clever I can be with an illustration or how much I can raise my voice or any of those things. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit speaking into our lives and saying, Eric, you're the man. Susan, you're the woman. Church, you're that place. It may be sexual sin. It may be anger. It may be covetousness and going, I didn't even see this in my life. And I've been so angry at others. And this whole time, God, I've been more guilty than anybody else. And then turning. And as we sing and God reveals stuff to our hearts to say, God, I've sinned against you to forsake the sin and then run fully into his grace, fully into his forgiveness. So let's stand together. Let's wait upon the Lord and let's worship. Jesus, we know that you're here. You walk in the midst of your church. You live inside of our hearts. We need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak, that you would search us, that you would know us that there would be conviction that comes from you over sin in our lives, that we wouldn't hide it, that we wouldn't justify it, that in this time and in these moments of, of worship, that there would be confession, that there would be repentance, but there would also be refreshment. Holy Spirit, would you pour out your refreshment? Would you pour out your restoration that comes from the presence of the Lord? May there be restoration in our fellowship with you. So would you minister to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.